You are listening to a Core Awareness Seminar by Liz Cook. Her website is www.coreawareness.com. That's C-O-R-E awareness.com. Please note that Core Awareness is a trademark signature of Liz Cook, her workshops, seminars, books, and CDs. The information presented in the seminar is in no way intended as a substitute for receiving professional medical care. The design and purpose of the seminar is to provide information and to simply educate. The author and publisher shall have neither liability nor responsibility to any person or entity with respect to any loss, damage, or injury caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly by the information, suggestions, explorations, or exercises contained within the seminar or written in response to the seminar. The author is not a medical authority, and she is not qualified to diagnose or prescribe any therapy. The information is simply her personal opinion. Please seek medical care for whatever condition you may have. So I want to welcome everyone to Core Awareness, and I'm Liz Cook. My website is www.coreawareness.com. My specialty for the past 30 years has been the iliopsoas, and I'm um, a lay person who got involved in uh, my own uh, human potential. And as I explored that, I um, became fascinated with the psoas and went on to do what I do, which is to teach a lot of workshops about the SOAS and to interface with uh, a lot of experts who actually know a lot more about the mechanics or the um, physics or the emotional, uh, psychological, energetic realm. And so I love to interface with people and ask questions and educate uh, myself and others and to enhance um, all of our well-being. And today, and if you go on my website, you'll see different podcasts that I do that are already available, and, and Katie Bowman's will also be available online, so you can share it with your friends. And uh, it takes a little while to get it up there, but um, today we actually have her live, and I will open it up for a few questions. It may create total chaos, so I don't know what will happen, but we'll, we'll see what we can do with that. Um, but here we have the live conference and, uh, and the fresh conference. So I want to introduce... Katie Bowman, too, for those of you who don't know who Katie is. I happened to find her through a blog where she was talking um, about um, the pelvic floor, and I got really excited what she had to say, so I immediately wanted to get to know her. And uh, so Katie is um, a biomechanical scientist focusing on educating people. And uh, I was very interested in your background with a career as a mathematician turned physicist and, and then combining uh, your love for anatomy and physiology with your engineering background sounds like an amazing combination. So that her undergraduate degree was in biomechanics and kinesiology and she began working with designing safe exercise programs for injured and post-rehab patients. Please, everyone, star six, who's just joined us, so we can move on with a good... Thank you. Um, 
And then you went on to going and getting your master's, and it looks like uh, with physics and engineering skills, she started to look at specific gait patterns. And that was very interesting to me, and I would love to talk about that because you see certain gait patterns associated with degenerative patterns. And, of course, with the psoas, one of the areas that I focus on is, or people who come to me, is with people who are having hip socket problems um, have obviously psoas problems, and so they end up at my doorstep. So you returned uh, to graduate-level biomechanical studies and uh, studied both large skeletal movement but also microbiomechanics, which happens to be one of my loves, is fluid movement, the fluid systems of the body. So um, that means the physics of blood flow in the cardiovascular system and the relationship between neurological function and cellular health and the role of the pelvic floor muscles in supporting organ position and function. So that's um, a lot of great information, and we have an hour to kind of explore this subject. And I have some specific questions, but first I just want to welcome you, Katie. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. So I wanted to begin because my focus is the core, and so my audience is about core. And core in America is always about abdominals. And uh, so when people arrive at my doorstep, the reason I call my work core awareness is because I would work a lot with proprioception. And that, for those of you who don't know, is the neurology of, of your sensory awareness, both your internal proprioception, specifically in relationship to your skeletal core and, and how we interface and how we, we actually um, are affected by gravity. And, and so I work with the deepest core muscle. And uh, I no, don't necessarily think of the psoas as a muscle. I think of it as a very bio-intelligent tissue and that it emerges uh, or literally grows out of our spine. So a lot of biomechanical language I'm converting into biointelligent language because nobody inserted or uh, your psoas. Your psoas grows out of your midline. And so midline to me means a lot. And so I wanted to start there, and I wanted you, Katie, to define how you perceive or define core, the human core. Um, in in the courses that I teach, the core is everything that the arms, the legs, and the head attach to. So it would be everything from the very top of your cervical spine and 360 degrees around all the way down to everything that grows from the pelvic floor. So that, that's our definition of it. Okay. And... Uh, there's a, a theoretical center of gravity in the human core, and I heard you when we first had our first conversation that you can measure that center of gravity. Would you tell people a little bit about how you do that and what that really means, having a center of gravity? Well, every, everything has a center of mass, and then things that are beyond the point mass have a center of gravity, and it's, it would be the point that the sum total of your free body diagram, all the levers and segments and forces that you're creating yourself and that are coming in from the environment, where all of those things are acting upon. And so there's an actual, it's, it's an actual center of mass. You calculate it using a very expensive, very large scale that measures even slight changes in movement that we use in biomechanical laboratories, coupled with calculating the lever systems of the body. So with mathematics and 
scale measurement, we can determine where it is. And in the human body, when it is a standing upright body, it's located in the pelvis on, on the midline in the center. And with the distance above the ground, like it could be a little bit higher or a little bit lower in the pelvis, just depending on your anthropometric dimensions. Your, your shape of your body, if you have a longer torso and carry more of your mass up on top or up on bottom will shift it closer to your belly button or clo closest to the pubic symphysis. But it's always going to be within the bony structure or bony skeleton of the pelvis. So let's, let's talk about the pelvis a little bit um, uh, because to me most uh, what people perceive as a psoas problem is actually a pelvic uh, it's, it's skeletal often, it's the sacroiliac joints uh, that call into play the psoas inappropriately or as compensation. So would you talk to me about how you look at pelvic integrity? Well, the, the pelvis is extremely dynamic. There's the pelvic bones, so that, that would be what gives your guts integrity. It's the lever system of movement, but then you have all of these other planes of motion and you have a fascial system. So so the pelvic bones, it's always important to remember when you have any sort of pelvic issue, which which I consider a sacroiliac joint to be a pelvic issue because it's located inside the pelvis, that any position that your bones are in, that's not really their fault. They're fairly an inert structure. I mean, they're alive and they're regenerating, but they can't move themselves. So any position that you have in any part of your body it's just a result of what are the forces that are acting upon them, whether they're coming from you internally via your musculoskeletal system or they're coming from you externally, which is, you know, sitting on something that's actually physically displacing your bones or whatnot. So um, let's go into that subject of, okay, when you have, uh, well, maybe I'm, I'm going to change my orientation here. I'm going to ask you first to go into the navel. Let's, let's look at the navel and, and as being kind of the first place a, a fetus experiences the earth, uh, so to speak, in terms of nourishment. You, you mentioned something that really intrigued me, which was how our organism um, organizes in utero, uh, first of all. Would you talk about some of that, how, what? Because I talk a lot about the midline, so I'm interested in your version of how you look at that, how an organism gets organized. Well, we don't, I don't deal too much with, like, embryology, which is what you're speaking of. But one of the ways, one of the things that we try to bring back when we are trying to get people past their movement programs that have become deeply embedded in their brain is the re-education that you have the capability you have the software and the hardware in your neurology that developed in utero for complete and perfect, and I'm going to use the word balance, but I don't necessarily care for the word balance because balance seems to me not falling. When, when actuality, what we're looking for is completely dynamic stillness, your ability to be still, which would be your ability to choose whatever position that you want unwaveringly. So many people have a problem standing on one leg. And then we put them, we will remove the surface, and then we'll put them on something like an unstable, like BOSU surface or a surface that pitches and rolls, and they'll find out that they have all of these continuous movements going on within their body because they don't really have any motor programs 
that have trained their body to stabilize relative to themselves. They have no internal reference points. And it's not that they don't have the programming or the, the hardware or the software for them. They just don't have any experience using them. So in utero, you're developing in a, a fairly zero-gravity environment. You're completely aqueous in that environment, and so your, your neurology will develop to give you all of the same reflexes and all the same programming, hardware and software that someone would need who was moving without the benefit of having the gravitational loading or even experience interacting on how to push off the floor. So in, in utero, when we were speaking before, that's what I was really speaking of, is, is your the skill set that you get in utero because of its non-groundedness becomes left behind when you experience a, a movement program based on a world that doesn't really demand that you use this three-dimensional stability program. So it's not that we don't have it. We just have never used it before. And what we spend a lot of our time educating is if you can't, you don't really have the option not to use it if you want ultimate, ultimate health and ultimate uh, proprioception and sensory awareness. It's really uh, a program based on the fact that you use it or lose it, kind of like everything else. So I want to go into that deeper because that's that's uh, the internal reference point is I think what I am uh, I don't call it that but that's actually what I'm working with is and I would call it that we have a self-referential or we have a self-organizing uh, capacity within us and that when we access that um, everything about the psoas changes. If you've just joined us, welcome to uh, the Core Awareness Podcast with uh, Katie Bowman, and I would ask you all to star six. That way we won't hear your background in this recording. Thank you. So, Katie, speak more about this internal reference point or this what you call software or hardware that is, is part of it that we may lose or if we don't use it. How do you start to access it in your program? How do you teach people to access it? Well, your internal reference point is your proprio, proprioception system. It's, it is how your body communicates to your brain where it is, and no external information is necessary, which includes vision. You don't need to use your eyes to see where you are in space. You come with all of this neurological software, which would be which would be the way that the, inf the sensory information gets integrated, which is really just joint displacement, muscle lengths, and velocity that those things are changing. And then you have the hardware, which is the actual nerves that are conducting the information, the muscles and the tendons and the organelles that are, are, are doing all of those things. So you have it. You have it 100%. But this is kind of electrical engineering. Electricity doesn't travel very well. Um, along tissues that are not at an optimal length. There's a, a length, and if you've ever played a game of tin can telephone, if you're speaking, and that's when you have a, two people with a tin can and a string running between the two, the only way the game works is if those tin cans are pulled taut because that's how electricity travels. So when you have arbitrarily through your postural habits, which are so deeply in, ingrained in your brain. They're not, they're not unconscious. They're in your conscious brain. They were put in after you, after you were born, after you um, interacted with other people on this planet. If you have shortened your muscle patterns, which almost I've never met anyone who hasn't, 
and you're working with a sensory input that's very similar to the information that you would get between one person playing tin can telephone and another. And if you've ever played a game of telephone where you kind of start off with one word and you pass it around the circle, it started off as something objective, but by the time it comes all the way through, it's going it's going through this slow changing process. It's very minute and what comes out looks kind of like what went in, but yet it's completely not the same thing objectively if you just look at it that way. And so that's what that's what's happened to our proprioception is your proprioception only works optimally, which means you only get the perfect exchange between data input and integration and then your body responding correctly to what came in is if all of your muscles are at their optimal length. And so there is an optimal length that puts the body in a very particular position and that alignment not only gives you the greatest amount of sensory input, it also gives you the least amount of degeneration to all of your tissues. Because in addition to this sensory input is also all of the feedback and the catalyst for cellular regeneration. So if you have a hip issue, like if you're having tissues that are degenerating in the hips or in the lumbar spine, we think of those as, you know, they're friction-based issues, but it's because your body is never intending to do itself harm unless the information that it's gathering about itself is incorrect, and it's just a hardware problem. We, with our conscious part of our brain, have, have kind of decreased the effectiveness of our more biological subconscious part of our brain that's simply trying to maintain cellular regeneration. So um, let's take this into uh, this idea of ground force reaction as an example, that once we arrive in gravity and we start to interface and respond to both uh, people and objects and, and gravity, or I don't know if you're a person who believes in string theory and doesn't talk about gravity in the same way, so I'd like to know your definition of gravity, but, but this, this idea that gravity, we not only move towards, towards the Earth, but also that there's a, a rebound or ground force reaction that supports us in, on land. Speak to that. I, I'm, not asking, actually, I'm not actually asking a question. I'm kind of bringing up a subject matter, so I'll, I'll open it to you however you want to interface with that. Well, I think, I mean, to keep the physics extremely simple, because I don't know if we have any theoretical physicists or particle physicists on the call, but the way gravity gravity is constantly a, a normal, meaning it's going straight down to the ground. It doesn't act in any other direction but, but perpendicularly. Um, that is a constant force that we are all under. And then in response to that resistance, it creates an equal and opposite reaction. So the ground reaction force would be you have gravity pushing on you, and technically you should be pushing towards the center of the earth. But because the ground is there, the ground is going to push back up on you with the exact same amount of force needed to keep you stable. Because if we removed the ground, then you would just, like if you were standing on water, and there was no gravity, you'd just be standing there. But as we added gravity, you would be sinking down towards the center of the Earth. And obviously, if there's water there, there's buoyancy forces, other forces going on. But the ground reaction force is not, it's not 
it's kind of theoretical when we speak about it, but it simply means that your reaction against gravity is going to change as the surface underneath you changes. So ground is going to, the ground reaction force is going to do the most amount of work to resist gravity. And it's your job with your physical body, like like you should just be flat pancake on the ground. But the fact that your muscles are responding to what it's feeling in between gravity and the ground reaction force, your body has choices and the choice is cellular regeneration. Cellular regeneration is always your body's biological default. But then you have cognitive choice on top of that, and we don't always pick the best thing for our, our body. For example, gravity is really just a compressive force. It's going to go straight down. There's no torque that gravity would generate on you if you were perfectly plumb aligned, very much like a column. If a column was straight up and straight down, the column wouldn't do anything else except compress and then maintain its position because of the ground underneath it. But once you start tipping that pillar forward, that straight, that same straight up and down gravitational force now has an advantage of torque, meaning gravity can knock things over if you give it an inch. But if you don't give it an inch, gravity really can't do very much to you. So our physical body should be plumb as much as possible but we have all of these things that we do like we put on shoes and as soon as you put on shoes with a positive heel you're no longer plumb it's just geometry something has to move that lay out in front of you so now you've got gravity and then you start to feel the effects of gravity and then you make a counter movement which is backwards so your response to the sensation of gravity gravity moving you forward was actually you moving backwards, which is different than you moving straight up towards the ceiling. So we've got tons of these little micro battles between what gravity is doing to us because of a habit that we have and the correction that we think that we should be doing. And in the end, what gets pinched and pulled and pushed out of alignment is sites of tissue that, that become, um, under greater frictional forces as we're moving around, and then therefore you get heat, and then therefore you get uh, osteoarthritis, or you get osteoporosis. And so all of these diseases are simply derivatives of how we are handling and responding to sensations that are caused by our environment, whether it's temperature or whether it's temperature over-temperature control, um, gravitational forces, being in the water too much. I mean, there's there's so many things that we do, very few of which are promoting cellular regeneration because we simply don't understand that process enough to go, oh, this is objectively something that I need for health. So what I, try to, what I've, what I did for my graduate work and what we teach at the Institute is there is an actual physical way that you can align yourself like a bridge where you can minimize all of those reactions and increase your cellular regeneration and move away from the disease that you thought you had because it's called, you know, a name of a disease as opposed to a set of habits that you have or conditions that you're placing upon yourself. That's great. Um, Thank you. I want to say welcome to everybody who's joined us and to ask you to please uh, hit your star six so that we don't get the background um, uh, noise in our recording. Thank you. So I'm uh, Liz Cook, and I'm interviewing Katie Bowman, I'm mechanical scientist focusing on core. And, and um, 
So what brings to mind for me, Katie, is this idea that we are oceanic in our origin, that bones uh, are, you know, can be traced back to the fish, and that we're, we both grow in a fluid system of uh, the utero, uh, uterine fluids, but we also have fluid inside. We're born 70, what, 70, 90% fluid, and, and so in some ways, we, uh, we come on land and we dry out. And, and, and so I'm wondering if you're, I, what you're calling cellular regeneration, um, are how that interfaces with this idea of our uh, oceanic origins and how, for instance, the psoas as filet mignon, as, it, as it's a very supple tissue, what I see is that people, as they get rigid, they dry out. And so a lot of what we call psoas problems really isn't a, something wrong with that tissue. It's that it, it's simply dry and not able to be responsive. It's not able to be the tenderloin and, and be... Um, juicy and supple and, and responsive proprioceptively. So how do you see the, our fluid uh, system interfacing with this idea of, of uh, working with gravity and our internal organization of uh, what you would call reference point? Well, your, the hydration is something that's going to happen on a multiple multiple layers. It's very much like strata in the earth, and it depends on how closely you're looking at it. So you, we would look at how much water is coming out of our urine as probably the most, like how, how yellow your urine, is it dark or is it light, as the most basic way of how hydrated you are or are not. And then you get into the second level of, well, that's all fluid that's external. Anything that comes through into your mouth and out your bottom, all those are considered outside of your body because it has an opening to the outside world on the top and the bottom. So if we're going to talk about hydration, we need to go to the next level. And that next level is where is the water stored in your body outside of, you know, you have water inside your blood. There's a fluid, a water component to the plasma in your blood. But then we have to realize that the water inside the body is stored within the muscle. And one of the reasons water is stored inside the muscle is water is a conduit for electricity, which is why you're not supposed to use a hair dryer while you're standing in a puddle of water, because water beckons electricity. But the storage that you have, the storage potential you have, is, again, based on the length of your muscles. So as you're noticing, people who are having psoas that, are, that don't yield is what we call it. They don't yield. They don't have the ability to contract, as all muscles should do, but then after that contraction, go back to their original position, which is what yield is. So if a muscle is not yielding, it means it does not have a length to return to, which means its actual quantity of fluid is less than its potential or its capacitance in electrical terms, how much it could possibly carry. And then, of course, if you have less water, then you have a less electrical signal that's able to move that area so you've got this kind of cycle that you get into and then if we're going to evaluate hydration we really have to go underneath that which is within each cell is a certain amount of fluid that your body carries but the misnomer about hydration is that it's about water water 
that is stored in your body after we talk about what's in your gut and after we talk about what's in the muscle is really what's inside every single cell. And what holds water within a cell is the bilipid layer that makes up the perimeters or the borders of each cell. And we, in our nutritional habits and in our arid environments and in our kind of over-controlling and over-reducing our, our, our dryness and then under-utilizing our fats, we're, we're basically dehydrating ourselves because we've allowed too many habits to become astringent. So if you, over time, decrease the lipid health of your cells, which means how many fat molecules you have, then, then the fluid that's inside those cells is allowed to evaporate. So if you ever use an astringent, which would be like a toner on your face or on your skin, I always think of sea breeze that, you know, it's from 70s where you put it on the cotton swab and then you wipe your face with it. The, the sea breeze or the astringent or the toner is not, is not what evaporates the fluid in your face, what it, why it gives you that dry clean, clean, squeaky feel. What it's doing is it, it's an astringent, which means it removes the lipid layer, and then the fluid evaporates because it's interacting with the air. So we have extreme astringent habits. We have coffee, we have tea, all those things are daily astringents that we place into our body. Um, alcohol, of course, is an astringent, and then you put in um, other things like aspirin is an astringent. Anything that tastes bitter to you is an astringent. So we're completely addicted to these astringents, which would be similar to things that you would see in people who are under high stress or high anxiety, also catalysts of a psoas disorder, because the psoas is constantly responding to the organs of reaction or the adrenaline system. And so as you're, as you're filtering astringents, you're literally dehydrating your body on the cellular level, which shortens the muscles, which dehydrates the body on the more muscular level, which then reduces the amount of electricity that's flowing through your body, which then desensitizes you to understanding where you are in space, and then you just get into the cycle of perpetually doing harm without realizing it. That's, that's a great answer. Thank you. Um, I want to go back just one step further to when we were talking about you were talking about ground force reaction. You talked, uh, you, I think you were extremely clear about the way gravity affects us, but but we're not static. And so I want to I want to talk about that idea. And this was actually part of the the idea of being fluid beings is that as 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 I would say, fluid beings, we we the spiral is part of. Um, it's part of the cell, it's part of the DNA, it's part of the way we grow, um, both in utero, the fetal, the, the fetal curl, and then we emerge out. And, and, and so gravity is really, um, you know, we're not a column, you know, and neither is the spine a column. Um, it has those undulations and those curves. So would you speak to the idea of the spiral in human in the human organism and how you how you work or see that or play with that. Well, I love the spiral. You know, the spiral in mathematics is just one of those amazing things that really takes a mathematician or a physicist into the realm of there is something so much more going on here. And I, I would say that most of your mathematicians and your physicists are much more mystical 
then then the media would have them perceive because they've seen the end of something that just can't be explained by anything mathematical. There gets to a point in which, you know, it's all this spiral. So, so you're not a column, and it's a good reason that you're not a column because you are this dynamic being. So you have curves and you have joints that bend because you're mobile. But if you can't, stillness, stable stillness, or um, I guess a better way to say that would be static, a static vertical plumb line would be your reference point to evaluate your own ability to stabilize. Because if you can't stabilize yourself when you're sending the cognitive message to be still, in an, in an environment that's not changing, then you can begin to understand objectively that your lack of stability is coming from within. It has nothing to do with the environment. So stillness, vertical stillness, which is just standing up straight, would be your, a, a good internal reference point to not distract yourself from the fact that you're unable to because it's a big neurological issue when you're not. And we call the unable, like the inability to still a neurological condition, tremors and shakes and Parkinson's, and where, where this person is unable to still. But if you think of it as a continuum and you put yourself into a column and you can't still yourself when you're, quote, perfectly healthy, then you begin to realize that you are much closer to a situation that is not optimal to you and you can take action as opposed to continuing to be dynamically unstable, which is moving and spiraling around without a column of stillness. So, so the, the perfect, if I can use the word perfect, meaning no joint degeneration, would be your ability to move in any pattern that you like but be able to always move or figure out the perfect, way of moving in a way that would not cause you to collapse. And I'm going to go to um, a really good segment that they did on the, the Nature Channel where they put a video camera on a falcon with the video camera looking back. And this falcon has such a complex computer system in its brain that it's constantly taking input in from the environment, the drafts, the temperatures, the thermals that are coming around, the velocity that it's traveling to make these extremely subtle adjustments of what's essentially its own aileron, you know, its tail, it's moving its, moving its rudders, it's moving its wings in such a complex way that you would imagine that there has to be some sort of master engineer up in its brain. And then you take us, well, actually, before I even go there, but the falcon has the ability to make decisions of whatever sort of dynamic motion it wants while continuously keeping its desire to remain where it wants to be, which is not fallen and crashing down into the ground. So you have the ability to choose exactly the dynamic patterns that you want without turning off the basic things that you need for survival. And so if you don't have this column of stillness, if you don't have a good handle on how to evaluate your own proprioception, and then you're choosing all of these dynamic unwinding motions on top of it, you're getting yourself into a position where you've turned off your biological imperative of cellular regeneration, which is really, that's what keeps you alive. Any place that you have cellular regeneration, you have new cells turning over, 
In any place you don't, you have cells that are wearing out faster than they're regenerating. So it's a wound, it's a, it's a, any disease that you have is a inappropriate cellular regeneration. So we have to have, we have to have the understanding that moving freely does not mean turning off stability to allow you to move all over the place wherever you want to go. It really is turning everything on, on 100% and expending so much electrical current by not turning muscles off, but by turning extra on the muscles that you want to move from that point of stillness. And it seems like a, a question of semantics, but in terms of ener energy, if you taking a step forward requires you turning something else off, then that's the wrong step forward. You should have everything on and then choose to take a step forward by adding just a little bit more into the equation, not by disengaging your brain from, from something that was holding you still. Right. So I call that, I call that midline coherency is, is how I, I talk about that with, um, with when it comes to the iliopsoas because in the, in the biomechanical world, the psoas is a hip flexor, um, and I actually perceive that tissue as more neutral than that. Um, I'd be interested in your take on the psoas as... Um, yeah, I think we define it as a flexor because of the um, compartmentalization of how we describe flexors and extensors. But I w would you say something about your idea of the psoas and how you perceive it functioning in the human organism? Um, well, I guess I have to comment on on the <laughs> on the way that muscle actions have been categorized. And I think from a biomechanics perspective. I wouldn't want you to confuse biomechanics, which is the science of how things move, with like anatomical, like medical anatomical textbooks or every textbook. Every textbook talks about every single muscle with the insertion moving towards the origin. So if you're looking at what, if the, if the psoas, which is a muscle, which is a um, skeletal muscle, contracts, we know that they all shorten with the ends moving towards each other, if the upper part of the body or the upper attachment of the psoas, which is on the thoracic and lumbar spine, stays fixed, then yes, it can pull the leg up towards the body. But if the leg is fixed against the ground and the hip flexor is not allowed to pull the femur out in front of you, or if the psoas is not allowed to play with your femur, which is your, your long thigh bone, the upper leg bone, then it will also shear the ribs forward. So the psoas can do multiple things. Um, it can pull your thigh towards you. It can pull the ribs out in front of you so that you have an increased thoracic shear. So if you can take your fingertips down and if you can latch your fingers around your rib cage, if you can actually curl your fingers up into the rib cage, then you have a psoas that is not releasing. It's not yielding back into its longest length. And its longest length, it has um, the ability to give you like forward stability, but it is not like it's not a one-trick pony. I guess it does it does lots of different things. You can have it doing something on one side and not necessarily something on the other side. It can prevent your pelvis from twisting relative to your rib cage. So it it has many many dynamic things that it it can do, and it's, again, pretty simple to evaluate what it is doing on you, but 
you should be able to lie completely flat on your back with your heels on the ground, with your hamstrings completely resting on the ground, with your pelvis in neutral, which would mean the hip bones, the ASIS, and the pubic symphysis would be in the same plane. You wouldn't have your pubic symphysis higher or your ASIS higher, and you would have a little space under your under your sacroiliac joint about the size of a pencil to come through, and then your rib cage would be completely on the ground. You're, you wouldn't see any bony prominences up on the front. So that's the best way to evaluate if your psoas would indeed even allow you to stand up straight, because if you can't stand up straight while you're lying flat on your back, if you don't have the mechanism to not be shearing or thrusting, then that's a sign that your psoas has reset to this length in response to you asking it to. It's doing something for you regularly, constantly, daily, minute by minute that you're just unaware of in your in the deeper part of your conscious brain. So we just try to help people pinpoint that out. So that's how we work with the psoas because it can, if you, if it flexes your hip long enough, it will tuck your tailbone under. It can thrust your ribs forward, which of course decompresses or compresses all of your lumbar spine. It can be responsible for uh, hips. Uh, vertebral fractures in the thoracic spine. You can do all sorts of neat things. It's quite amazing. But the thing to remember is it's always doing whatever you're mechanically or somatically asking it to. Your body doesn't do things that you're not asking it to do either either consciously, like, you know, if you want to suck your stomach in and you're constantly holding your belly in, that's, that, is, that is a choice, and it's a choice that shortens a series of muscles all the way to the way that you the shoes that you wear or the way that you carry your torso, gravity is asking it to do those types of things in order to stabilize you. Thank you. Um, uh, I wanted to, because we've only got about 10 more minutes, I wanted to check in about um, the connection. I, I know that you work a lot with the feet and shoes you've mentioned. There's, so there's that connection between core and feet. What how for the for our listeners? What do you think is most important for them to understand about this relationship of stillness and their feet? Um, well, your your feet. In terms of balance, you have a vestibular system for your head. It's what keeps your head relative, relatively stable to the horizon at all times. It's a very deep reflex, but. Your body's position should not be based on vision. So you should be able to close your eyes and feel exactly the way you need to displace your body, the most subtle way you need to displace your body in order to have the most most active stillness with the least amount of degeneration. So that requires a very large amount of sensory input that you're supposed to get without without looking. And so your feet are essentially the eyes, and they have... They're very complex. 25% of the muscles, the number of muscles and bones in your body are from the ankle down. You have 33 joints in your feet. And if you do the mathematics, that means your feet have over 8 million billion different, different configurations each individual foot can have, which means every single different, every single unique motion is like an image of your environment. And so the regular use of your feet as eyes communicates information back up through your through your nervous system. So that's what proprioception is. And your core, the position of your core, is based on the information that's coming up through your feet. If not, 
you're adjusting you, your center, your nervous system, your center of mass based on faulty information. So if you've got something in between your foot, the eye, you basically got blinders on every time you put a shoe on, you over-adjust, which means you get a little bit of that game of telephone, which means your center of mass is just a little bit off, but just a little bit off in a really dynamic, regenerating creature ends up affecting nerve nerve health, um, muscle function, hydration, whatever whatever you want to evaluate it on. There's nothing going on with you in your physical body that is, is not affected by the lengths and the, and the positions of your whole entire body. Every single choice you make gives you a different physical outcome. So you want to pick the one that gives you the most cellular regeneration because that really just means not disease, the least amount of disease. So you want to make sure that you've got, if you look at your hands and you can think of all the things you can do with your hands. You can make a fist, you can not. You can touch your thumb to your pinky finger, you can put your hands down flat, you can lift each one of your fingers individually. That's, that's exactly all the same mobility you should have with your feet. So if you put your feet down and stand up and you can't lift your third toe by itself or lift your big toe by itself. It means that your nervous system's processing center, where your body makes choices for you, is doing it with the most dull or the smallest percentage of the picture possible. So if you've ever made a decision on something where you had just enough information to make a bad decision or, or if you heard part of a conversation and jumped to a conclusion, your body, body all that instability is literally, literally your body jumping to conclusions all over the place, realizing that, oh, I, my feet told me I should go here. I'm going to fall if I stay here longer than jumping or responding back. All of your lack of stillness is your body's overreaction to misinformation because of what's, has, what has happened in the foot. Wow. So we're running out of time, which is, I, I'm learning so much. It's fabulous. You're very, very coherent in your explanations, great explanations of things. Um, I, the last question, I did talk to people about, you know, the pelvis, and I'm going to be doing some more work in the fall around the pelvis because I feel like this, that center is um, such a dynamic uh, expression. And you were mentioning to me when we talked about doing this about the energetics and, and the languaging and how people talk about chakras, but that there is a, a bridge between energy, energetic perception of ourselves as an organism and, and this, whether it's physics or um, a scientific understanding of the human organism. And I, I thought that would be maybe a nice ending for you to make that bridge between, say, for instance, let's talk about the pelvis. And you, know, you talk about the pelvic floor muscles and this whole center, and yet in the chakra system, you know, it's such a place of grounding here on Earth. So you want to discuss that a little bit, how you see those two interfacing? Absolutely. You know, I think... The more, the more open we can be to everyone's information, the understanding that no one has incorrect information, they're just looking at it through a particular filter and they're evaluating it based on an evaluation system that they themselves have set up. So when you look at sciences like medical science or, or just even anatomy and physiology, the way we've organized those 
tissues. Like we've organized our muscle into skeletal muscle and smooth muscle and cardiac muscle. But that doesn't say anything about that, – that doesn't mean that that's what it is. It's just a language system that has gotten everyone on the same page for, frankly, the purpose of making great leaps and bounds in terms of what's available to you as a human being. And then when you switch to an energetic system, or I work a lot in Ayurveda, the way that Ayurveda classifies tissues is completely different than Western medicine. But if you understand both language systems, you'll see that no one is saying something incorrect. They're both saying things correct to their classification and their evaluation system. So when we talk about things like the second, the second chakra, since we're talking about the location of the pelvis and the psoas. I, I like to teach a class. I teach a class called Psoas Science, which takes you through, here's all the anatomy of the psoas, et cetera, and here's, here's all the, here's the, here are the, the vertebra that it displaces, and here's the, the sections of the spine that it shears, et cetera. And then let's look at, let's switch to a different, a different language system. So after we've talked in anatomy and physiology, we'll switch over to chakras and say, let's, let's pull up the orange chakra, which is located in the lower abdomen to the navel. And then let's look at the diseases that when someone has a second chakra disorder would manifest. So if you came to an energetic worker or um, a yoga therapist and you're like, I'm having problems with my sexual organs or my stomach or my upper intestines or my liver or my gallbladder or my kidneys or my adrenal glands, they're going to say, well, I know from studying this course that those are elements of the second chakra. But if you go to your doctor and you're saying, I'm having issues with my sexual organs and my stomach and my upper intestines and my liver and my gallbladder, then they're going to go, well, I know from studying my science that you're having a problem with the lumbar plexus. So the lumbar plexus is a grouping of nerves that is located just about where the second chakra is located. So no one is saying anything different. But if you're trained in that this has a name and this is the lumbar plexus and this is where every single thing goes, than someone saying that it's a second chakra issue because you don't have enough information is going to seem kind of crazy. And if you go to the energy therapist and you're going to say, well, the doctor says I have a problem with my lumbar plexus and this nerve coming down, because they don't know what that means, they're going to say that's an overthink. You're just having a problem with stagnation in this area. And, and no one is incorrect. But what they don't realize is they're saying exactly the same thing in different languages, and both people on both ends are really preventing the person from understanding. Both people on either end are, are confusing the person who needs help by making it seem like someone is wrong in order to have to be right. So if I can, if I can give any sort of wisdom is that no one's really ever wrong. Everyone is just looking at either it really, really close up really, really far away, and you just have to get on the same page with the evaluation system that the person who you have not put in charge, but the person that you're, you've chosen to work with, to find out what is your reference scope. So if I choose to go to, a, you know, to blend therapies, et cetera, that I know, I know the scope of what you're talking about so that I can at least do some informing. So that, that would be my best recommendation, and, and just kind of my understanding of of the way that the way that these two camps, which seem to be on other sides of of health, 
which are exactly always 100% wanting the absolute best for you who's sitting across from them. That's the best way to deal with that, I believe. So I'd like you to let people know how they can reach you and find out more about your workshops and your classes and um, all that you're doing. You want to give everybody your website and, and let them know what you're going to be up to um, in the near future. Well, I'm always up to a lot. Um, <laughs> if, if you're interested, like, out of all, there's, there's two different ways. You can go to a website called katysays.com, and it, I, my name is K-A-T-Y, and it just says, like I told you so. So katysays.com is a blog that I use to kind of explain phenomenon, give a lot of self-tips. If, you, if, you're, if you're interested in, in knowing more and like, oh, I, I really felt some flashes in my head and I want to work on myself a little bit. If you're interested in knowing what I know and how to how to help impart this information, how to take an individual, either yourself or your family or your client base, etc., and totally change their life with the most objective, but just like this ground, I can't, I don't know, I can't even, it's just so amazing. It's so amazing when you realize what the potential is and that there is an actual path to optimal potential. Then you can actually take the certification course, which is a six-month course, and it, it runs on the East Coast and on the West Coast. So our East Coast training is going to be in New York City. And if you want to email me, um, my email is katie, K-A-T-Y, at restorativeexercise.com. And I'm going to spell it because no one seems to know how to spell exercise. It took me, it took me all the way to graduate school before I realized how to spell it. So restorative exercise is R-E-S-T-O-R. A-T-I-V-E-E-X-E-R-C-I-S-E dot com. So there's a training in, in New York, and then there is a certification at the Institute here. We do at least one every year, and that's in February in Ventura. So if you email me, I can point you to the information that you're seeking. And that's Ventura, California for anybody Correct. who doesn't know where yeah. Katie and I are. We're both in California right now. All righty. Well, thank you very much. Um, we're headed over time, so I'm going to say thank you to everybody. Um, we've got about, you know, I don't know, three minutes. But um, I think rather than take questions, you've got, her, you've got her email, so you may get a slew of questions. And maybe we can put together something if you do get a bunch that we can um, put on the website so people can look at it or connect with your website so people can look at it. But I want to thank you very much for joining me. I, so it was a very informative conversation, and I learned a lot, and I hope everybody else did too. So thank you, Katie, for taking your busy time. Thanks, Liz, for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Goodbye, everybody, and thank you for joining us. <laughs>